Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Previously on Climbing Gold. Camp 4 was the center for, for climbing. I showed up in 70 with a two-man tent, sleeping bag, no rack, pair of shoes, and a chalk bag. Nobody survived if they weren't a big personality, I think. It wasn't a place for meek people. Plane crashed on December 9th, 1976. So it really did feel like the gold rush or something. Like it felt like this incredible life opportunity to strike it rich in the mountains. Exactly. And back then, you know, that was the war on drugs. That was Nixon's war on drugs. Like a flame, like a blowtorch would leap off the stuff. It, like, <laughs> it was like, what the hell's in that stuff, right? <laughs> I, I mean, Bill drove up in an XJ-12 Jaguar. There was always an underlying tension that they could always stop the fun. There was nobody in a group as any kind of drug dealer, not even. Holy shit. There's an airplane and it's full of marijuana. Next question. This is part three of Dope Lake. A four-part series on one of Climbing's most unbelievable true stories. Sometimes life is stranger than fiction. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. And I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. This is Climbing Gold. Chapter 3. The Black Book. You all were obviously really good at taking risks. That was like a part of your life as, as climbers in that era. And, you know, now people are hiking pounds of weed out of the lake. They're transporting it. They're offloading it. I mean, all these things come with jail time. They come with, like, serious consequences. And, and I'm just curious, like, whether you guys even saw it like that. Did you guys even see it as, like, a risk? We didn't even think about anything like a risk or anything. Climber Dale Bard. We had way bigger fires to burn than that. We were thinking about routes on Hill Cap and Sentinel and Half Dome, you know, that's where we were at. I mean, this airplane thing was like a sideline. On the measuring scale from one to 10, it was a two. At this stage, it's late March. Earlier in the entrepreneurial efforts to salvage the weed, winter conditions made it exceedingly difficult to get to Lower Merced Pass. In fact, people even had to bail from a few of the initial attempts. Now, the snow was beginning to melt, making travel slightly easier. Slightly. We waited fairly late to go up there, although I, I knew what was going on. This is Vern Clevenger. There were all these people coming back, coming back. They couldn't get, couldn't get the ice axes. They couldn't chop it out fast enough. And we took a chainsaw. <laughs> so we got a lot of stuff out on that one. That was a, you know, a good run. We had two full loads coming out, so... Huh. So, and because it was frozen solid, like frozen in, or why was it? It actually solid? was. Yeah, it made a big difference. Yeah, so it's not mushy snow. You had to just cut the ice up and throw it somewhere. We did the best we could with what we could afford in those days. Were you basically extracting marijuana popsicles, like giant frozen blocks of marijuana? Yes. And if you got one like that, you knew it probably wasn't going to be uh, soaked in oil if it was all huh. the way frozen. And, and how big are the loads? Like, how much is that? I think it was 120 pounds waterlogged. It goes between 80 and 120. There's things I just don't remember. I mean, it was really heavy to get out. Yeah, how, how, did, how did you carry that out? Because the lake is, is quite far back there. I mean, that's a very heavy load to carry. Well, you got to remember who you're talking to in those days climbing. These were pretty, you know, hefty guys that are up there doing You just put it in your pack and walk out. 
and you put it somewhere. I think I was drawing it out above the bridge, above Tales of Power, somewhere up there. We had a place to put it. I don't really remember. All of that stuff gets romanticized because it plays off the old buried treasure kind of thing, that art type. And how many stories do we have about that with pirates? And, you know, all of that stuff just got heaped on that thing. You know, it was dismal weather, pissing down rain. You know, everybody was filthy and freezing up there with chainsaws cutting into the ice, hoping that they would hit the green stuff that would fly off the saw. And if they did, they'd start digging there and pull out a, a huge sodden bale of weed, which was had aviation fluid all through it. And then you'd have to pack that out and hope the rangers didn't catch you. And the reality of it was anything but romantic. It was just brutal labor, you know, that's a, what, a 30-something or other mile round trip, knee-high slogging back there in the wintertime, you know, freezing cold. Nobody had any mountaineering or winter gear. So basically what had first been just a few climbers covertly hiking packs up to the lake had at this point escalated into a full-blown scene with people coming from the Central Valley and the Bay Area in search of riches. I mean, how many people were up at the lake? I mean, what was the what was the scene at the lake? Well, I was only there one day, actually. It was just in between climbers getting stuff the weeks before and then people from, I'm going to say, Fresno coming up. So it's getting crowded. Maybe 20, 30 people up there. Most of them not climbers. There's all kinds of people with guns and knives. The word had gotten out too far. We assumed it was Fresno gangster. I really don't know. Uh... We got things out easily because we had the chainsaw. Turns out the chainsaw Vern and his buddy had borrowed was becoming more and more useful. We had the chainsaw a couple inches of some guy's throat the day before trying to steal our stuff. So so you come any closer, you're this is the last step you're ever going to take, and I think he would have done it. So It's right around Easter weekend, and the people that we talked to estimate that there were maybe 30 to 60 people up there. Most of the low-hanging fruit had been picked clean at this point, but rangers were starting to field these odd reports from staff. Chainsaws are missing and cars are being parked in strange places. I mean, they'd close, like, quote, close the trail, but obviously there were people trekking out there nonstop. There's like an unofficial salvage operation underway. I mean, how, how was it that climbers managed to run almost an industrial-scale salvage operation without the rangers knowing about it? Well, they, they eventually caught on. Climber Rick Akamazo. Valley's a small community, as you know, so eventually got back to the rangers. Is there any way that something like this could stay a secret? Like, realistically, you know, when you think about the size of that community, is there any way that you could kind of keep this whole thing under wraps? There's no way that something like the plane crash could stay a secret in Yosemite because it's such a tight-knit little village and everybody is married to somebody or dating somebody or has a friend or some super close friend and they went for a hike with a friend. You know, basically everybody chit-chats. And even if something is sort of a secret, you know, everyone's going to tell their significant others and all those people then tell their friend who doesn't seem like they're related but they're actually married to somebody else who is. You know, it's like pretty soon everybody knows. It's like a, it's like a little village gossip spread super fast. About a month and a half passes. I think it was April 9th. Uh, Bob calls me, Bob's Dive Shop. Beyond running a dive shop, Bob was also the rescue diver that Butch had called to search for the pilots that first week in February. He calls and says, uh, Butch, I don't know what these guys think they're doing, but they're 
these guys, and, and they're obviously uh, climbers from Camp 4, are coming in trying to rent scuba tanks. And said, they're not divers. And of course, he had been there a month and a half or so earlier. He knew about the incident because we had used him quite a bit. And it just seems sort of strange that all of a sudden all these climbers are getting air tanks. Ranger Mark Forbes. And, uh, you know, we're government employees, but we could kind of figure these things out that, hmm, maybe we should go back and check on this. And uh, about the same time, we started getting reports from our road crew, uh, which was out plowing the road to Glacier Point. And uh, we started getting these reports of these, uh, you know, an unusual number of cars being parked at the uh, a parking lot about where the end of the road was, uh, where the road had been plowed to. So we sort of put two and two together and uh, realized that uh, we actually had been, well, I guess I don't know the right term, but these guys had gone in and they were taking this marijuana out. We started getting word and it came back through a couple of our seasonal employees that people were out at the lake uh, getting weed. Ranger Tim Setnika. So what happened is one of the interpretive staff happened to be a, a private pilot. So he says, I'll go down and rent a plane and fly over the lake. And he did. And so when he flew over the lake, he saw 30, 40 people there in tents and everything all out. Uh, in the middle of the lake, obviously, you know, camping. April 13th, 1977. It was time to take back Lower Merced Pass. With Customs, DEA, and the FBI fully aware that their crime scene was now an outright gold rush, they gave the Park Service access to military helicopters. And while other federal agencies were involved, Lower Merced Pass Lake was NPS jurisdiction. It was their crime scene. Armed with shotguns, the Rangers launched their mission, named Big Wednesday. So the Rangers fly in, and they have the uh, Vietnam-trained helicopter pilot from uh, Lamar Naval Air Station. They really got into this, and they did a very serendipitous flight into the uh, lake. They popped over the ridge with these uh, rangers on board, and there's maybe a dozen or 15 uh, people out on the lake with their chainsaws and with their equipment and tents and sleeping bags and stuff. Uh, one of the rangers that was, uh, a ranger by the name of Paul Henry, he said that as soon as we popped over the uh, hill, and the way the Navy did it, you couldn't hear the helicopter coming from very far away. And he said that everybody on that lake just scattered like a covey of quail. I mean, they just fled everywhere. They're probably all like baked, and then all of a sudden this helicopter just like rolls over the bridge with like armed rangers jumping out of it. It's like, yeah. Yeah, I like to imagine all the bales of pot stacked up into little couches and stuff, you know, and that people are just sitting there like smoking pot and sitting in their like amazing empire of (laughs) illegal fuel-soaked weed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then they're like, oh, shit, it's the cops descending upon them with a helicopter. And I think only one person was arrested that I've heard of, that I, that I know of, was arrested with a big pack of marijuana coming down the trail. And the rangers were going up the trail. And they made him open his pack. We had a couple of teams 
uh, down the trails, which would catch people coming down the trail. One of these teams caught Vern Clevenger as he was backpacking, <laughs> had a backpack full of weed coming from the lake. We were bringing our second load down the trail. So I only actually got paid for one load. And there were three rangers coming up, and of course, we were busted. I said we were carrying a chainsaw to get in shape for Mount McKinley next summer, which everybody just laughed. I mean, you couldn't hide the smell, and you couldn't hide the way the backpack looked and that sort of thing. And so they tried to put us under arrest and wanted us to go back to the lake. And I actually refused because it was getting really dangerous. Vern and the rangers are friends, so they make a deal. The next morning, he walks himself over to Yosemite Jail and turns himself in. I remember getting booked, picture taking all day in a chair in a holding cell, going just crazy. And I was really pissed that day. It was very hard to be in holding cell. Awful. I remember doing some of the most pull ups I ever did. Do something to keep my mind off what was going on. You do one pull up, you rest maybe a minute, and then two, three. And I got up to 43, and then you had to go down. You did 43 pull ups with, with a minute rest in between? Well, I got 19, 20, 21, 22. It's a lot of pull-ups. No, no, it's a crazy amount of pull-ups. And then at 43, you had to go back down. You got to do 42, 41, 40, 39. What Vern is referring to here is a workout routine known as a ladder method. You go up and then you go down, starting with one rep of an exercise and then building from there. For Vern, that day, locked in a cell, worried he was about to go away to prison, that he would lose access to his beloved Yosemite Valley, his mind chewing at itself, he just did pull-ups. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a lot of pull-ups. Yeah, 1,892 to be exact. Yeah, it was a hard, hard day to sit there and really hard couple of weeks too. Do you remember what charges you were facing? Like, you know, what the, what the consequences could have been? I think it was 60 pounds a pot in our possession. Do you know, you know, what that would have meant, like jail time or, you know, banning from the valley or anything? No. Well, I mean, it could have been life in jail for all I knew. It must have been. It was serious charges. We were over 18. That's crazy. So I had to get an attorney right away. The only attorney I really knew was Rex Faith in Sonora. Uh, he represented Bridwell a lot of things there. Of course, my memory has faded now what it all was, but he was the lawyer you went to. We paid him in dope and he sold it in Sonora. I guess I should just come out with the story. It doesn't make any difference anymore. So you paid your attorney for the pot bust in pot? In pot. <laughs> and so when you got busted, they didn't take your pot? Or this is the, the previous load that you had hiked out? I lost the second load. I got about 20,000 the first load. I lost the second load completely. Wow. I remember there's just feelings of terror. What am I getting myself into? We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. 
As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. <laughs> I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. <laughs> If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. Alex, have you heard of D.B. Cooper? Yeah, I mean, I've heard of the story of an unknown hijacker escaping with money. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking... I mean, it's just such a such a crazy story of just jumping out of a plane, disappearing into the night, and never being found. Yeah, but uh, but actually, I didn't I didn't know it was a real thing. It's crazy too, because like people are still, you know, because they never found his body. It's like the story never ended, and people are still fascinated about it. Like they're well, he probably didn't didn't die, right? I mean, he probably just got away with his money. D.B. Cooper hijacking was in 1971, and it's still fresh in everyone's minds, and definitely also for the law enforcement. And so there's these similarities between these two stories also, right? Because technically the pilots are still missing because no one's been able to find the bodies yet. The plane itself is a mystery because it has no owner. And at this point, federal investigators have traced the plane back to a shell company called Red River Ranch, right? It's not a real company. It's just a name. It's no one. And so the government comes at the guy who sold the plane to the shell company with the drug charges. And so then he gets freaked and starts to cooperate. And it's becoming clear that this isn't just John Glisky acting on his own, right? This is part of something much bigger. Yeah. 6,000 pounds of weed don't just fall out of the sky. From that day on, we maintained a presence up there of two rangers, you know, to enclose the area to prevent that further uh, pilfering of the of the weed in the uh, wreck site. We were doing what they called light patrol. This is Dean Paschal, a Yosemite hang gliding ranger from the 1970s. There was a hang gliding ranger? Yeah, there was a hang gliding ranger dedicated to it in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, kind of wild. Um, but that's, that just goes to show how much more popular hang gliding must have been. Because <laughs> nowadays, like, who even knows how to hang glide? <laughs> and so they would fly in um, rangers, and we had this little inflatable raft, and you would just patrol the area for the time that, you know, we would swing shifts. You'd go in for a couple of days then fly out um, to guard what was left of the pod, which, you know, is well less than a third probably by the time we got in there you know over time the lake had thawed out so now we've got these bags of marijuana on the shore floating in the lake and they're and uh, over time they're all collected and periodically they're all flowing out of there so by this time most of the weed had been taken out of the lake and the rangers were maintaining a 24-hour presence to keep things secure but one daunting task remained Divers still hadn't been able to locate the bodies of John Glisky and his co-pilot, John Nelson. We wanted to find the bodies, you know, quite honestly. And that's why 
we started uh, ice diving, uh, it wasn't so much to recover weed. It was to try to find the rest of the, the plane if it had was still intact and where those bodies might be. The divers worked in shifts. The visibility, as always, was challenging due to the murky water that was mixed with ice, airplane wreckage, and a toxic combination of oil and aviation fuel. Finally, after long days of searching, a diver discovered what the rangers had been waiting for. So this young guy comes out of the water like a Trident missile. And then right, right afterwards, within seconds, a body flows to the surface. Although we knew technically who these guys were in order to sort of finish the loop, uh, you know, connect all the dots, uh, Don and I end up cutting 20 fingers off uh, uh, both the pilot and the, uh, his uh, friend. So we end up taking these fingers with a pair of pruning shears and putting each finger into a vial of like formaldehyde, a, pres a preserving uh, fluid. And the idea is to send them off to the FBI lab, which would uh, inject latex underneath fingers in order to get their fingerprints. Well, that was done, everything satisfactorily shipped off. And the word came back as, as to who these guys were. And since they were both in Vietnam, their fingerprints were on record and that sort of thing. So, you know, there were a lot of things I did in the, as a park ranger, but <clears throat> no one ever taught me how to cut off fingers. You know, that, wasn't, that really wasn't part of my uh, job description, I don't think. But it's what we had to do. It was kind of traumatic in some ways. You know, it's, I mean, I've been around a lot of bad things and, uh, but this was not something I really liked to do was cutting these guys' fingers off. And even though the Rangers were up at the lake 24 seven, it didn't stop more people from trying. Like we said, the word had spread. And at one point, two Rangers stationed there ran into six teenage boys wandering around in the woods. It had taken them six days to get to the lake because originally they had gone to Merced Lake, which was a completely different lake. And lost and wandering around the woods, they ended up stumbling into the correct lake. The next day, the rangers walked them down. So at this point in the story, you're probably thinking, okay, the rangers have locked down the lake from climbers or any other bad actors who might be lurking around and you know, they've located the bodies of the pilots, and so this thing should be wrapping up, right? Well, it turns out things were just starting to get interesting. Our dispatch office got a call, anonymous call, that said, look, we have the, the pilots' wallets are in the phone booth at the phone booth located at Camp 4. Click. And sure enough, we sent somebody over there, and somebody had recovered their wallets, okay? Money was gone, but all the, the ID and all their stuff were in those wallets. And Tim Setnica, he thinks he knows who it was. But when I've pressed him and even checked with other names, he wouldn't reveal his thoughts. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning that the timeline around a lot of the stuff concerning the wallet is pretty fuzzy. It's so crazy. This story is just starting to feel more and more like some sort of crazy true crime mystery. Yeah. We don't know who found the wallet, but I think there's a good chance that it starts with a guy named John Yablonski. Yabo was Yabo. 
spatial, soulful. I mean, there's nobody else like him. This is Dale Bard talking about one of the all-time legendary and maybe most notorious stone master, John Yablonski. Yablonski was known for his harebrained solos powered by manic moments. He'd come from a difficult upbringing. And while Camp 4, at first, didn't know what to make of this strange but very passionate climber, Yabo grew to be the very inner circle of the Stone Masters. God knows how many times we dropped acid and, and did crazy things. He was super strong and, you know, he wasn't elegant to watch as he climbed. You know, he was jerky and jittery and all of the above, but the guy never let go. You know what, what you guys do now, and you call it a sit-start? That's what we used to call a yabba start. He invented it. So Yabo is definitely involved with bringing the weed down. And back before the rangers shut the lake down, Yabo did something kind of crazy. On one trip, Yabo's up there, and... They're cutting holes in the ice. It's getting a little bit slushy. And basically, he just says, screw it, I'm going in. And he dives down, like no suit, no scuba gear. He just dives in to this lake, you know, the same lake that all the rangers are struggling to like scuba dive in, and goes down and finds a box, a waterproof box. At the time, he's with another SAR climber named Jack Dorn. So I started doing some research on Jack Dorn and where he came from, what kind of guy he was his background. This is Rick Schloss, a researcher and longtime friend of Pam Glisky, the pilot, John Glisky's wife. You might remember him from the first chapter. And um, it turned out that he was pretty much of a health nut. Some of the guys that knew him said that every morning he'd get up and do like 50 to 100 push-ups because he knew that if he wanted to climb, he was going to have to have some, some good upper body strength. And so he was always into that. He constantly was swearing off drinking alcohol. You know, he'd go on a binge and then swear it off, go on a binge and then swear it off. This is the part of the story where things get a little murky, right? Really up into this stage, like, everyone kind of agrees about what's happened. And this is a stage where things get messier, where memory becomes a little less precise, a little less clear. So, Dale, like, we keep, we keep hearing it was Dorn, Jack Dorn, who found the book in the lake. Are you kidding? Dorn couldn't have gone and done that. He wasn't brave enough. Yabo was crazy enough. He dove down into the airplane and he went into the pilot's place and uh, they were both dead. And he found this box and he brought it up. And uh, in the box was a kilo of cocaine, and this book. We all looked at it and went, what the fuck is this? It's just a bunch of names and addresses. And according to Dale, Yabo is more interested in the cocaine, but Dorn takes an interest in the book. Multiple people remember the cocaine and Dorn's interest in the book, but the memories are pretty messy. It's also worth noting that other people recall everything being in a pilot's jacket versus a waterproof box. But anyway, that night, a party breaks out because, you know, there's some interest in the cocaine. But Dorn is focused on the other contents of the box. Jack Dorn was up at the lake. Supposedly he also found a wallet in it. 
and he kept that. And then he, when he read the book, he realized that the book contained pages of dates, people's names, addresses, pounds, and dollar figures. This was the ledger. And the black book had all the names and addresses and contact information for what was going on with the plane. All kinds of people in the Western United States. Phone numbers and, and contacts and names and what have you of what uh, John Gliski had been doing. I mean, this was actually a fairly, you know, for its day, a fairly sophisticated dope run, you know, sneaking all this grass into the United States. And he thought, I can capitalize on this. I can make some money out of this. And so he called some of the names and it just happened to be, you know, Washington DC numbers and um, things went deeper than one might have anticipated. And it's like, whoa, you know, this could be big. And so Jack said, if, you know, look at, I got all the information on this. If you guys want this back, it's going to cost you. And um, here's how we're going to do it. And literally two days later, all these suits show up at the LEO offices in, in uh, the park. And they're asking around. And it really bothered Dorn that either the DEA would want to see this and want to talk with him about it, maybe even think it, he was part of it, or whoever the bad guys were, the mafia, uh, they would want a piece of him because he now could, knew what was in the black book. So he had this notebook and he ends up ripping it up and he ends up uh, throwing it into a snowbank. The alleged black book is where all the stories out of Dope Lake start to spin off in more wild directions. What happened to the book is kind of one of those things that's probably been lost to history. Whoever found it first, everyone does agree that Jack Dorn ended up with the Black Book. And to a T, everyone agrees that the Black Book did exist. But what happened next, where it happened, there's a lot of variants. Some folks say that Jack ripped the book up at the crash site. Others say he burned it or that it was stashed underneath a boulder in Camp 4. Others think that the Rangers ended up with it. But the book was definitely not a figment of anyone's imagination. He had gotten down to the uh, Yosemite Valley and he had a couple friends that were Rangers and so he told them about the book because he was still pretty upset about it. And the Ranger that he talked to said, you know, this is evidence of an ongoing investigation and we gotta, we gotta go get that. He ends up going, taking one of the rangers back in, and they find this notebook. The pieces of paper, of course, it was underneath the snow, and they, they were able to salvage most of it and put this notebook back into, uh, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle, put this uh, notebook back together. And then, like a day or two after that, this rescue gets called. We'll be back with more after the break. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration. 
and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. May 22nd, 1977. It's after midnight. The night is pitch black. It's beginning to rain. And at that moment, two young climbers are benighted on Yosemite Point buttress, two pitches from the top. And they're huddled together, trying to stay warm, and they start shouting for help. And their cries kind of make their way down to the valley, where, oddly enough, Butch Farabee, awake in the middle of the night, hears them and starts the rescue. Didn't you, like, solo that route this last spring? Is that right? Yeah. You did? Yeah, I, I onset soloed Yosemite Point Butchers last spring, and it actually turned out to be a total epic. That, so that route was classic. What's it like now? Like, would it be easy to screw up or something like that if you were a 1970s young climber? Dude, Yosemite Point Buttress is heinous. Like, heinous. Like, using modern topo, modern technique. And, you know, I'd like to think of myself as a relatively skilled route finder now. Did not find the route at all. Completely missed everything. I, I did, like, a five-pitch variation in the middle where I just missed a huge section of the wall. Like, everything about it was a complete debacle. I mean, the rock quality is terrible. Also, the time of year that I did it, the whole wall was crawling with ants, so you're constantly getting bitten by by ants. Like, everything about it, I was like, this is a horrendous climb. I mean, I did it because it's sort of historic, and, and it is a nice line up a, up a pretty wall, and, you you know, you summit uses 70 falls, so it's quite a, quite a nice position. But, man, it's a terrible climb. We have uh, some uh, young guys caught on... Uh, uh, the Yosemite Point buttress uh, needed to be rescued. And it's these two climbers that are about two pitches down on YPB. So two pitches from the summit. Nothing wrong, but they're concerned. They're hypothermic. And we need to go pull these guys off. The ranger goes down there about four o'clock in the morning and gets some climbers uh, to go up and help these kids off this climb. Uh, they decided to put together a, a rescue team. Among them is DeMillis, Dennis Miller, and his buddy, Jack Dorn. And they, they made the hike up switchbacks after the gear was all doled out. And it was a, a sort of a drizzly morning, and Jack uh, and this group are hiking up the Yosemite Falls Trail. They hike up the Yosemite Falls Trail, get to the top of YPD, set up a rescue system, wrap over the top, and Bridwell and others are like, this is bullshit. You know, these guys got all the gear they need. They're fine, they're healthy. What's the deal? And everybody was a little um, uh, puzzled by the whole thing. And um, Dorn was sort of hanging in the back. Jack Dorn was known for wearing very thick 
what they call pop bottle glasses. In other words, he had a sight problem. And he's not missed for some minutes. And somebody goes, where's Dak? And Milla says, you know, he's right behind me. I, you know, he stopped to get a drink of water out of the creek. That was the last time I saw him. And it's like, shit, you know, and so they start looking around for him. They go back and look for Jack and they can see where he actually has uh, disturbed some rocks on the edge of the trail. Would you just give like a brief description of the Falls Trail? Like kind of how much elevation it gains, like where, you know, where it is in relation to the valley, in, in the valley? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Falls Trail is one of the most popular hiking trails in Yosemite and it switchbacks basically straight up to the top of Yosemite Falls. So almost 3000 feet of vertical up to the rim of the valley. How hard would it be to actually fall off of the Falls Trail? I mean, on the one hand, the Falls Trail is the most popular tourist trail in Yosemite. So it is incredibly wide and well-marked and, you know, it's got good stonework. I mean, it's a good trail. On the other hand, it's really slippery granite. And if it's wet, which it often is because of the mist from the falls or if it's raining, you know, it's pretty slick. And there are definitely big drop-offs in places. So certainly, I mean, I'm sure tourists must die from time to time falling off the Falls Trail. I mean, it's, it's certainly possible, but it just doesn't seem probable. And particularly like for a climber to fall off of it. I mean, for a climber to fall off the Falls Trail is, I think, akin to just getting hit by a car in the city or something. You know, it'd be like stepping off the sidewalk at the wrong time and getting hit by a bus. Or, you know, it's like kind of one of those random things where you're like, yeah, I mean, it could happen, but you're like, man, what terrible luck. Yeah. Because it certainly doesn't require any skill. I was on that rescue, and yeah, there's this one sharp turn in the Falls Trail where you could drop maybe 20, 30 feet, something like that, and it's not that far away from Camp 4. And there in the middle of the turn, of course it's raining, are two what look like foot skid marks going off the edge of an unprotected turn on the on the switchback. And somebody uh, said, uh, he must have just walked off the trail. And we just were going, what the fuck? How did this guy trip here? And then all of a sudden, there's a new rescue looking for Jack. You know, an hour or so later, uh, several of us, including myself, uh, are gotten out of bed. And by this time, it's light enough. And we're able to find Jack. And they hike along the base, and here's Jack at the base of the cliff, dead. And now it goes on to rumors and legends. And the rumor is that Jack Dorn, because of the Black Book, was pushed off the edge. Next time on Climbing Gold. He didn't fall off the trail. He was thrown off the trail. There are several of these conspiracy theories that you know, the drug dealers killed him and what have you. But, you know, when you really look at it, it's like, that's pretty asinine. Nobody ever mentioned any names. It was just a very general discussion of an event that happened. All I know is that book was really important. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Evan Phillips, Lauren Delaney Miller, and me, Fitzcahal. Evan also mixed today's show and provided the original score. Additional music from One Links, Joey Cantor, and Wildness, courtesy of Track Club. 
Jake Wheeler handles social media. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RxR Sports, and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape Then Beer. Thanks for listening. 